Welcome to Hedge Fund Tips with Tom Hayes. I'm Tom Hayes, and this is your 127th video cast, 117th podcast for the week ending March 24th, 2022. A lot of great stuff to cover this week. We'll kick it off uh, first with the media. I want to thank Devik Jain and Bansari Kamdar for including me in their article on Reuters earlier this week. Uh, this was regarding the Boeing crash in China, 737-800, not the 737 MAX. Uh, 737-800 is one of the safest planes in history, the third safest in history. I think when they uh, go through the black box, which they recovered today, they're going to find that it was either pilot or maintenance error on behalf of the airlines, an unlikely uh, uh, error on behalf of uh, this particular plane, which has been in service by China Eastern Airlines since 2009. So uh, thanks, thanks again for including me there. Uh, quote of the day, we're going to cover a couple of themes uh, from Peter Lynch. I like this one. The most important organ in the body as far as the stock market is concerned is the guts, not the head. Anyone can acquire know-how for analyzing stocks, and I think that was more apparent in the last eight days than, uh, than many other periods in history. Uh, and lastly, Ray Dalio, the biggest mistake investors make is to believe that what has happened in the recent past is likely to persist. And I think uh, people are finding that out with Chinese stocks, uh, both uh, from a gut check standpoint and from a, a belief that they were uh, uninvestable uh, last week before the reversal began. So we're going to kick it off with, uh, we've got quite a few Ask Me Anything questions this week. So I want to get to them all because there are quite a few good ones, actually. Uh, first off, uh, this is from Drew. Uh, this is from Dr. Drew. Uh, Drew B. on YouTube. He always leaves nice comments. I appreciate that on the YouTube videos. Dear Tom, first and foremost, a huge thank you for the absolutely captivating, highly informative, innovative, and uncannily accurate content that you generously post every week on your podcast and YouTube. I have been a listener for around nine months now, and these episodes are, by a country mile, the financial highlight of my week. I am literally getting withdrawals by Thursday here in the UK waiting for your posting. <laughs> it's no surprise that the major media channels regularly, regularly invite you on. I am a relative newbie to regular investing due to my medical career, etc. But I have found that I really enjoy following investing the markets 24-7. Huge thanks to you for that. In another life, I definitely have loved to work in the hedge fund management. Maybe it's not too late at some point. I wanted to say how grateful I am for your, quote, opinion, not advice. Uh, see hedgefundtips.com for terms uh, every week. Thank you for that disclaimer. I hope to be able to perhaps balance some content from last week's podcast. I weighed and studied the merits of uh, BABA towards the end of last year and 2022 and invested. My average 99.88 BABA is now at 127 euros, was approximately 15% of my portfolio percentage then, an amount nowhere near the levels of investment you have though, unfortunately. Uh, I also had approximately 5% in an emerging markets ETF, so I didn't want to risk getting carried out in your famous stretcher. Though fairly, uh, though fairly recent to regular investing, I am glad to have somehow held off, quote, puking out, unquote, as you so descriptively put it, at $75 recently. 
Though it was a bizarre few days, I found myself somehow remaining calm, thinking of the sound fundamentals as you do, and I'm so glad I did. I was actually very tempted to top up at $75 too, but worked on other parts of my portfolio at the recent discounts to hedge BABA EM exposure. Herein lies my question. This is such a good opportunity. I'm thinking of buying the same BABA amount again at current prices due to the recent extra cash available. This would average me down to a 110-ish and my exposure would change to around 23% with cash, uh, etc. It's such a good opportunity, but I wonder if it's worth to go worth it to go from two, 127 to 110, which isn't a huge reduction. A 2-3 bagger would be great with either. In terms of my situation, I have no debts, steady income, touch wood, uh, to be able to continue to build into stocks, funds going forward, all being well. I work at that ever taking it for granted. I um, never taking it for granted. I wondered if you had any thoughts about what you might consider for yourself in that situation versus e.g. diversifying more on the biotech side or elsewhere, appreciating that, of course, you won't know all circumstances, et cetera. That's correct. Uh, by the way, would love to be a fly on the wall whenever you meet Peter Schiff in Puerto Rico. Uh, uh, now that would be a major box office as I enjoy Peter's content also. Uh, yeah, Peter's a great guy. We see things a little differently, uh, as you know. Um, you know, P Peter loves gold, and um, but he do he also has a value tilt in his uh, uh, in his um, stock uh, analysis. So so that we agree on. Um, a huge thanks again, and keep up the amazing, accurate, insightful, innovative, and generous work. You deserve to live jobs <laughs> oh Job's 140 years and catch many more Marlins for all the great work you do in informing your audience and with such modesty given your huge success. Re your recent Bible reference. All the best, Dr. Drew. Uh, Drew be on YouTube. Uh, yeah, uh, by the way, thank you for this kind e email, uh, Drew. This, um, th this is uh, really nice to hear as many of you have been following for a while. Uh, you know, it, it gets a little bumpy from time to time, but ultimately the short term, it's a, a voting machine. The long term, it's a weighing machine. And we're seeing the weighing machine kick in, you know, to your point, see hedgefundtips.com terms. I don't know your situation, uh, but I will say this. I mean, many of the smartest investors in the world, I mean, started buying this thing much, much, much higher and, and it was cheap, much, much, much higher. Um, the reason I brought up this, because we've gone over the fundamentals ad infinitum, you know, it traded down to six times next year's earnings when you back out investments in cash. Uh, now they're buying back, uh, they increased their uh, buyback to an historic 25 billion from 15 billion. They've only used 9.6 billion of that. And, you know, um, so the reason I just put up this monthly chart and I've covered in past podcasts that if you really want to make money over time, you want to look at the monthly, not the weekly. And what we can see here is, you know, when it gets down to these oversold levels, uh, this is a time you want to be buyer. The last time was it was uh, three three x two, you know, two hundred percent return, and and here we are again. That's not to say that that necessarily has to be re repeat, but anyone that follows uh, technical analysis knows what a, a ca uh, hammer candle looks like, uh, and this is usually what it looks like when you put in big bottoms. So. Uh, my expectation is, you know, we'll move in fits and starts, but, but the lows are in and it's going to puke higher. Unless Buffett took out more margin debt to double down on his double down, um, my best estimate of his basis is $165. And um, I think he's going to make a fortune on, on the position. So 
you bringing your basis down to, you know, call it uh, from 127 and you're adding, topping up, uh, you'd probably bring your basis down to 120. I mean, that's a, that's a home run. Um, if you have no biotech exposure, I mean, Alibaba and biotech are our two largest positions and they're approximately equal size. Baba's a little bit bigger because of what we did last week, but if you recall, uh, we were able to control for every $10 million of assets for 84,000, we controlled uh, at, at 105, we control basically 10% notional for the portfolio. So for every 10 million of assets, we control another 1 million. So it's basically like taking our total position to 30%, even though we only added less than 1% of capital at the bottom, we got our total exposure up to 30%, which is much higher, but our, our risk is actually 20.84%, give or take. So, um, um, you know, I like them both. I mean, I, I, I you know, uh, Baba is a huge weight for us as well. Um, and we've only gotten that high conviction with, you know, a handful of positions in our career. Wells Fargo's one, uh, um, Baba's one, and now Biotech is the third. And we haven't talked a, uh, enough about Biotech, um, but uh, it's, it's, it's pretty damn high conviction. I mean, right now, um, Biotech is trading at a 10-year low in its price-to-sales ratios. We've covered its price-to-book ratio. You know, it'd have to appreciate 24% to get back to its average price-to-book since 1986. It'd have to appreciate uh, 155% to get to back to its average uh, price-to-operating cash flow. It'd have to appreciate um, 111% to get back to its average uh, price to forward PE multiple since 1986. And as we always say, just as things overshoot on the downside uh, in despondency and panic, they overshoot on the upside in euphoria and chasing. And we think the same will be the case with biotech. So to answer your question, you're, do, you're already doing you know better than um, Charlie Munger uh, in terms of your basis. Um, we were able to bring ours down material because now we control all that stock at 105, um, you know, which is equivalent notionally of a third of our position. Uh, so that's, that's meaningful. That, that brings it down into the 120s, uh, which is where you're in the high 120s. So, um, you know, I mean, to be a fly on the wall for the person listening to this first time for the first time and, and having an ability to get in at these levels, I think it's a godsend. I think it's a, it's a home run from here uh, based on the fundamentals, based on everything else. So um, yes, but you have to consider it in terms of portfolio management. Um, you know, I would add some of that and I would buy some biotech. I would, I would have both, um, you know, personally, I think, uh, I think they're, they're both great opportunities here. So thanks for that, Drew. Hope, hope my response was helpful for you. Um, but you know, look, um, I think someone here is going to bust my, you know, what's about going over my 20% threshold. I think it was, ah, Sumit, here we go. Uh, Sumit Kapoor, Tom, uh, hey, Tom was listening to your pitchboard podcast and really enjoyed it in it. You mentioned that you look to, uh, that you look and disprove the short thesis before deciding to enter any position. Is there any reliable source or sources you use to completely understand the short thesis? 
Um, that, that's her first question. Uh, one, you want to look at a lot of the sell side research and particularly when they're pessimistic. So for instance, that guy that bottom ticked it and said, you know, it's uninvestable. What, what was he thinking? And was he, was that already priced in? We believed it was, it proved to be true. Um, um, you know, a lot of the, uh, aggressive short theses will be public. You, you know, you'll know what they are or in the industry, you know why people are short or down on a stock. Um, it's just experience and contacts, but, um, you can find enough of it publicly from the sell side research, uh, two, and how do you decide whether the sentiment is sufficiently priced in? I basically just try to look at everything objectively relative to the fundamentals, relative to where it's historically traded. And what is the reason? I don't even have to know the short thesis. I just have to know why the stock is down. So, you know, we knew about the regulatory crackdown. We knew about the regulatory risk. We looked at how uh, this has happened over history every three to five years pretty consistently. And then we decided, has the price gotten low enough where uh, the Chinese government was actually hurting themselves more than they were helping themselves. And at what point would, would that pain inflect? Uh, they took a little bit more pain than we anticipated they would, but it doesn't really matter because once they change their mind, the reversion is so quick and so abrupt. I mean, it's up 65% in the last eight days, Alibaba. So off the lows. So, um, um, okay. Now here's where she, um, so to answer your question, I mean, uh, you know, backing out the cash and investments trading at six times forward. I mean, this thing is traded in the high 20 times historically. Uh, and, and with the regulatory crackdown easing, I think the growth rates are going to go back up higher than people think. So, you know, even if growth slows, it should still trade at 20 times and it was trading at half that. So that's how I knew uh, sentiment was sufficiently priced in. Um, three, in the case of Baba, I think you were already at a 20% position size when it was trading um, between 90 to $100 and you usually don't go beyond 20% position size. Did you break your sizing position discipline during the recent capitulation? Yes, I did. Uh, and thanks for calling me on it. Uh, thanks for sharing so generously. Best to meet. Uh, and I did. So it was just one of those rare dislocations. And that's, I know my knitting. I know what I'm really good at. I'm really good at dislocations. When people are panicking, I thrive. That's just what I do well. I don't do a lot of things well, but that's one thing I do exceptionally well. And um, I had the opportunity to increase my position basically by 50%, but only risk another 84 basis points of capital. Um, so effectively, I took, the, I took the notional from 20 to 30, uh, but the risk from 20 to 20.84. And there are only very few times in a career that you have the opportunity to do that. This was one of those times and uh, brought our basis down huge and we took advantage of it. So you are a keen listener. These are great questions and I hope the response is helpful. Ben, first name only. Uh, okay, so... Anyway, I just wanted to show that some of these technicals where, where we are and what that looks like again on a monthly chart because I find them more helpful to put things in perspective. Um, that's odd. I thought I'd had the XBI. Let me just pull up the XBI biotech so you can see a similar theme unfolding here. And that is um, also put in this quote unquote hammer candle. That's usually where you make bottoms, where you make bottoms. 
And, you know, you can just see how oversold it is here and here and here and here and here. None of these are magic indicators, but it tends to be the bottom, you know, tends to be the bottom versus the top. And I think this is a good template. We've discussed it uh, in the past. Uh, the multiples are lower this time, but, you know, this thing could work right back up to uh, new highs over the next two years. And, um, and this is just the, that's the XBI, uh, which is the equal weight biotech, more of the mid and small caps. Um, and then, okay, let's do this. Um, just want to show you guys the Labu because we've got some of that, which is just a little bit of extra oomph. Um, Yeah, so I mean, if if uh, XBI works up to back up to new highs over the next two years, you can see uh, again this big candles in just like you saw in 2020 and also like you saw in 2016. So the last time it did that, uh, it was about a 10 bagger. You know, from here it it could be an eight or 10 bagger. Um, but um, you know, we'll share shave some off on the way up not be pigs, but you know, it, it certainly wouldn't surprise me if uh, this wasn't a five bagger from here. And over time, over meaningful, you know, 12 to 24 months. Uh, and that's going to be enormous contribution uh, over time. So, um, so yeah, that, that also answered Dr. Drew's. Now, uh, Ben first name only. This is a good question. Hi, Tom. Do you agree with Warren Buffett's oxy purchase? If he's right, does XOP have a bright future, only long-term or short-term too regarding XOP? Okay, so Buffett actually did a deal with um, Oxy uh, in late 2019. So his basis is somewhere around here, and he got a ton of warrants in the 50s. So uh, do I agree with him buying another billion dollars up here? Um it's unclear if that was, uh, it, it could certainly have been a straight out purchase. It could have also been a warrant conversion from the warrants he has in the mid fifties. I bought a ton of those warrants uh, in, in April, in the April period in 2020. Um, I plan on holding those for a while. I did shave off some um, because, you know, most of the EMPs, I shaved off a bunch of stock at these levels. But uh, I'm going to hold the warrants for the long term. I do think that over the next three to five years, this will break out to new highs and persist higher. So, on the, But my stock basis was much lower. So I took some profits into the strength, as we've discussed in recent weeks with EMP. Uh, would I be a new buyer up here? Absolutely not. So in that context, I, I, you know, Buffett and I differ. Uh, and... Um, I'm more like Icon. Icon also bought down in the lows and he just laid off his stock. I wouldn't lay all of it off. I, I like to have a tail on some of these things. Like I have a tiny tail on Wells, even though we took the bulk of the profits out in the high 50s. Um, and if we got a, a, you know, an abrupt pullback to the low 30s, maybe I'd reload to the long term. I'm generally bullish on energy over the next three to five years. I just think with everyone chasing it the last two, you know, month, month and a half, uh, the trapdoor is likely to open in the short term. Some of these things that are high beta names are going to fall, you know, 30, 40 percent. 
uh, and we will have a chance to reload for the long term. And I kept all the natural gas names running, like range resources, like uh, Comstock resources, etc. So uh, I wouldn't put new money to work here. Absolutely not. That's that. Uh, that's just my view. Uh, I think it works perfectly over the long term. I just think there's going to be a better entry for reloading uh, in coming months. That's just my my view. Even if it goes a little higher first. Uh, ben, first name only. Again, um, number one is a double top in oil very possible? Uh, that is. Uh, coming short-term failed test of the 130 resistance or is oil's price determined by events or supply and demand or speculator bets? Uh, it's all of the above. I mean, uh, so here's the commitments of traders is, is actually unclear here. Um, but this does look like it topped out, you know, and we've been talking about that for the last couple of weeks. Um, you know, could it push higher like 2008? Yeah, you know, if it stays up there for a while, uh, look, my general view here is I, I hadn't, <laughs> I was interested here. Up here, I don't really care. I'll let other people get the last 10% or, you know, pick up the, the last few nickels in front of the steamroller. It's not for me. I, I just know that whether we're here and, it, and you get a monster blow off, uh, or we're already here and you're going to just roll over hard back down to 80 or 70, which is kind of my instinct. Um, I'd, I'd rather reload down here and, and uh, the, the E&P names are levered long to that. So they'll overshoot. So if oil comes down 30%, some of these names are going to come down 40 and 50%. And that's when I can reload, reload for the secular, uh, secular move. Um, but we just already took too much out of the pie. We're, we're, we're happier than a pig and you know what. So, uh, and that's what financed us being able to buy more and more biotech and more and more, uh, Alibaba and China tech. So, um, it worked out perfectly the timing while, um, oil was having the blow off top, uh, um, biotech and China tech were having the blow off bottoms. We, we sold the blow off top and we bought the blow off bottoms. Um, or blow, you know, capitulation bottoms is, is a better way to describe that. Uh, what's the status of the Iran deal? Okay, so uh, the Iran deal, uh, every day we get new. Yesterday it was Iran says the nuclear agreement is closer than ever. Uh, so, you know, it looks like they're buying time. They're probably going back and forth with Russia, but this is going to get solved and that's how close it is as close as they say every few days one day they walk away from the table the next day they say it's closer than ever so uh, i don't know what that means it sounds like it's closer than ever um how overbought is xop in the short term i mean like i said you know it's 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 gone up you know 400 percent off the lows so could it go up 500 percent? yeah it certainly could um so let's see, four times three, three and a half. So you're looking at 250%. So could it go up another bit? Yeah, it, it could. Um, but um, uh, I, I'm more interested in playing the pullback versus or waiting for the pullback. Even if it goes higher, I'm not going to chase up. It, you know, if it comes back down into the 75, 80 range, uh, 80, 85 range, I'd start to take another look and particularly at individual names. 
Uh, and then finally, uh, switching gears, why do you sometimes look at a 10-day average of the put-call ratio? Wouldn't a longer time horizon be more telling? Uh, good question, but the answer is no. Um, the reason is, is I'm looking for short-term indications of oversold or overbought, and I'm looking for turn points. So if I'm using a 30-day, by the time I get the signal I need, like we just had one of the biggest six-day rallies in history. I think the NASDAQ was up close to double digits off the lows in six days. So I would have missed all of that if I had a longer-term thing. So using the normal put-call ratio, I get a short, very short-term view. The 10-day smooths it out so I can see exactly where it is. Anything longer than that is useless from a short-term indicator perspective. Um, okay, Sumit, okay, hand, answered Sumit's question. Uh, JT Investor, Tom, quick question on SMG, that's Scott's Miracle Grow. Chart looks like it's beat down and prices of grass seed and fertilizer are skyrocketing with consumers still spending on home improvement. Um, and SMG also offers a backdoor play on cannabis. What are your thoughts on the stock? Okay, JT, let's have a look. Um, oh, by the way, so just to... Um, deal with uh, Ben's thing here. You know, the, the, I, you know, I would like to see more selling from the commercials here. They, they started to sell a little bit. So that's why I can't tell you if we're going to get more or we're going to roll over. My inclination is the latter because the commercials are just unclear. It's not giving a clear signal right now. But, you know, you look at the rig count up from 244 to now 663 since the pandemic lows. You know, that supply is going to come on fast and furious. Um, and uh, those are just two more data points. So, you know, you stream out on SMG, it's certainly oversold, but relative to history, it's, you know, it, it, it was up 5x off the uh, 2019 lows in 24 months. So, uh, you know, 50% retracement on a 200 point move uh, would take you back to 150. So it's probably done its so anyway, let's look at the fundamentals here. I mean, the business is, uh, continues to grow, although it's been basically flat um, for the last three years in terms of earnings and cash flow. Uh, let's see here. All right, I didn't open it up for, uh, for that. They've also taken earnings down uh, 40 cents for next year and 50 cents for this year. So, you know, seven, call it six, seven percent uh, and five percent. So let's just call it six percent. Consensus price target is 174. Uh, I think you can play it for a bounce. I don't like these like backdoor cannabis plays. Cannabis is, is you know, it's a commodity. I think those stocks will run once again once you get some legislation catalysts they'll bounce up again and um, you know, maybe there'll be two or three major players that'll consolidate the industry, but it, you know, you really have to have brand differentiation. I'd almost rather play, you know, like the retailers, but you know, they, that's complicated. You know, there was MedMen. there's some of those beat up things, but that's a tough business. Um, to answer your question in simple terms, the stock is obviously corrected a lot more than earnings have. Earnings have been flat. The stock is down, you know, more than 50%. I think you could play it for a bounce. This is not a pound the table, high conviction idea for me, but this is something that um, you would likely find 
yeah, this is something you would likely find in the trade service where we would just play the bump for, you know, 90 days and the in the money call spreads would be up, you know, nicely and, and we'd call it a day and get out. So, um, uh, so that's that. Good question there. Marcus Dorman. Uh, hi, Tom. Uh, thanks for all your great insights you share with us on the weekly podcast, your website and the media, your opinion on the markets are very valuable to me and my account. <laughs> After managing my BABA option call spread contracts for months, now the patience is finally being rewarded. Last Friday, I bought a bunch of shares at $88, which I plan to keep until they're at least 250 Smiley face. Uh, now, a quick question. Do you have a price target for PAGs uh, where you'd like to start to take some profits? Uh, thanks and have a great weekend. So, you know, we covered PAGs uh, a few weeks ago, a lot of people have been asking about it. So I just pulled up some data. Um, you know, you, you look at the revenue per share continues to grow even through the pandemic. You look at that return on equity. Uh, it was, you know, had that one aberrational year. It's still been, you know, low double digits. Return on invested capital uh, has been questionable. It's been negative. So it's, you know, it's a play. It's a leverage play on Brazil. So it was down because of inflation. They're going to have the. Um, they've raised. I think they raised their prime rate up to twelve percent or something recently. So they're getting it under control. They've got an election coming up. Um, I like emerging markets here. I like it because they're beaten down. So, uh, and they were down because of that report that the FBI was raiding them in Florida because they had Chinese machines. Uh, Chinese uh, uh, credit card terminals, but none of their businesses in, you know, so all their businesses in Brazil. So I don't really care if the FBI is rating them. So, um, so here's the long-term chart. I mean, you know, uh, you know, short-term, you could probably take some profits up in, in, in the high 20s. But I think if you like Brazil, this is going to be a decent long-term play. And you just have to watch the fundamentals on a quarterly basis uh, if they keep improving, this thing could potentially have a long way to go. This is kind of a leverage bet on Brazil. So uh, without doing an enormous amount of work, I, I like it. I, I generally like it. So, um, all right. Here's from uh, Nicola Johansson on Twitter. Uh, Hi, Tom. First, would like to say I love your podcast. I know the pro this is probably too small cap for you, but I'd appreciate your thoughts. I find the company and business very interesting. Ticker is YI. Uh, they did approximately $2 billion in revenue last year, growing fast. Market cap $260 million, 13% of sales. Um, will be profitable in 2020, referring 2022, referencing last earnings call. Already cash flow positive, confirms last earnings call. They don't need further funding. Uh, Yi is an online pharma platform directly working with 500-plus world-leading pharmaceutical companies and serving more than 385,000 retail pharmacy. Government loves their business. China demographics, as you know, means they should grow for a long time to come. What are your thoughts? Um, okay, so uh, that is a pretty attractive pitch. Um, I looked up the fundamentals, and there's no question that, uh, you know, the business was growing revenues exceedingly fast. It kind of flatlined in the last 12 months, probably related to COVID. Uh, it actually declined a little bit in the trailing 12 months, but from what you're saying on the earnings call, uh, they increased it. It's losing money as far as I could tell, but you said that's going to change. Um, so, you know, small cap China, you, you, you know, I'm in China in like the biggest name. Like if this name goes down, China goes down. So I'm willing to take that bet. These highly speculative stocks, um, it's, 
it's high risk. I mean, that's all I can tell you. I know the fundamentals sound perfect, but if you're going to see fraud, it's going to be in this size company. Um, if the government loves it, that's good news. But I mean, how I would treat this at $3 a share, everything sounds right. If this was a U.S. company, it'd be like, wow, this is unbelievable. Uh, I would treat it as an option. So I wouldn't size it more than an option, which means like less than, you know, 100 bips of the portfolio. The only difference is you won't have a, an expiration date. And if it goes to zero, you can, you can live to fight another day. So uh, if you've done enough work and you feel confident, I think the way you manage your risk on something like this is sizing and it's, you know, it's a sub 1% position and, you know, it could easily be a 10 bagger and that's going to be a huge contribution to your portfolio and it could go to zero. But, you know, the risk reward, the asymmetry is, is worth, you know, potentially taking a little punt on it. Um, okay, let's see what we got here. Uh, Gregory Stewart. Hi, Tom. It sure has been fun to be an Alibaba holder over the last week. Thanks for your great advice. I even bought some December 2022 call options and boy, was that a good decision. Anyway, I often use Finviz after your suggestion to keep an eye on the lookout for some good bargains since I'm not sure I can pick the best deals as well as you do. I was looking at sector ETFs. I've been noticing that the communication sector XLC seems undervalued right now. What is your opinion that it's a good time to invest in the communications ETF or will I need to be more selective? Um, so yeah, I mean, in some sense it is oversold. I, I, I think the key is look, look under the hood. Uh, here's the long chart, but what are the 10 holdings? So Facebook, I think that Facebook is undervalued. Google might be a little undervalued. Netflix is, has uh, uh, sold off tremendously. Um, it's you know still a little rich in terms of valuation, but some of the value players are stepping in like Ackman. Disney I like, Comcast I like, Alt Charter I like. Uh, that was a new uh, trade service uh, uh, idea. Um, AT&T is cheap and Activision Blizzard that was so sold. But every single one of these stocks is cheap. So that would be the tell for me that uh, the communications ETF might be worth a look, but I'd be more inclined to pick individual names where I have an edge, you know, Disney, I talked about on the claim and countdown last week, uh, you know, a couple of these cable companies, not more, you know, one or, you know, pick one of the three, AT&T, Charter, or Comcast, pick your, pick your poison, so to speak. But uh, th those have gotten beaten down and, and Facebook, I think, is cheap. So I think you're spot on there. I think you've done good work and I think you're learning a lot. So, um, okay. Uh, hey, Tom from Marcus Dorman. Thanks a lot for your great article. Yesterday, I was worried about my Amazon and XBI uh, biotech positions. After reading your article, I think they still might work out fine and there's nothing to do right now. Uh, what's your opinion? I, I think you answered your own question. I think the name of the game is uh, patience is where you get paid. Um, and if you're in high quality businesses that are on sale, you generally can't go wrong. Uh, JT investor, hope you're having a good week and it's great to see your call on Chinese stock market playing out as you have expected. Thank you again for all the great work that uh, you do to help your followers. I'd appreciate your views on a few macro questions. Why do you think the U.S. seems to be suffering a labor shortage in almost every industry given the pandemic no longer seems to be an excuse for not going to work and the extra unemployment benefits have ex uh, ended? Um, okay, so I think there's a couple of things and I think that's a good question. Um, first off, people have an enormous amount of paper gains of wealth uh, in both the stock market, i.e. their 401ks, and in their real estate values. Um, 
in my purview, real estate trades like a bond. As interest rates go up, the value of that bond comes down. And I think the same is true of, uh, of real estate. I also think that rates are not going to go up as meaningfully as everyone predict, but they're going to go up. The rate of change is going to slow dramatically uh, for real estate. Uh, rents could continue to increase, which will uh, create a floor for, for any softening of prices. Uh, and they're generally a good inflation hedge. I think inflation will be above trend for some time, but it won't, won't be out of control. And we've been talking about that for a year and a half. Um, I think it'll revert back to in the 3% range, which is actually very constructive historically. Um, so I think that has a lot to do with it is the paper gains. Uh, I also think that people got used to working from home and many people had never done that before. And a lot of people are trying out self-employment and for many of it's, them, it's going to be great. And for uh, many others of them, you know, they're going to fall into the normal statistics that nine out of 10 businesses fail in the first five years, and then they'll go back and get jobs. So, um, so I think it's just a transition period. Um, I think that more and more people are running, you know, out of funds and going back. I mean, we've seen it just with, uh, you know, pricing work around the house, you know, uh, two months ago, it was impossible and the bids were exceptionally high. Uh, now you're getting phone calls back and the bids are coming down uh, and they're starting to normalize. So I, I think this is just a, a, a process here. Same with helpers, uh, cleaning, et cetera. Um, you couldn't get them. Now they're, they're uh, coming back with you know, uh, more normalized offers. So I, I think it's just a cycle. I mean, you, you pump $5 trillion into economy in 18 months, and you think you're not going to get in short-term inflation, you're crazy. But if you think it's going to stay forever, I think you're also crazy. Um, I think that it just has to work through the system. It was basically like you put the adrenaline shot in the patient on, on, the, uh, on the table. You know, it's just this huge reaction, and eventually the heart goes, and it starts to slowly get back into to normalize. And within a, two days, he can leave the hospital and he's, and he's good again. And I think right now we're between the adrenaline shot and uh, that heartbeat getting normal. And now in kind of recovery, you know, another couple of days in the hospital and it'll be back to, to more normalized probably as we get closer to summertime. Um, summer and fall. Do you think some of the unusual spikes in commodities are sending signals that the markets are becoming disorderly? and are a precursor to the next crisis to impact the financial markets. Um, no, I think this is actually kind of normal. As a matter of fact, if you uh, look at grains, I put out a tweet this week that uh, I think corn and soybeans are, are looking toppy here. And this reminds me of my trade in 2012. Um, look at what the commercials have been doing here. They're selling like crazy. I think, I think you're going to see corn collapse in the next couple of years. And I think you're going to see soybeans do the same thing. Uh, commercials have been selling just like here. Now, could you have a final blow off where we go up you know, to 1900 before we start rolling over? You bet. But, um, but I'd, be a, I'd, be, I'd be looking for a short, not a long here as everyone's panicking that food prices are never going to come down and the war is never going to end and blah, blah, blah. These are looking like they're at or near blow off tops. 
And, uh, you know, just because commodities spiked in 2008 means nothing. They also spiked in 2012 and 2013. And we got another uh, eight years in the cycle until we had a recession in 2020. And now we're two years into the new cycle. So, um, you know, could it go higher uh, before crashing? You bet. But these aren't going to stay sustained for years. They're going to stay sustained for weeks or months before they start to roll over again. Um, finally, since your crystal ball seems to work better than most people's, how much longer do you think it takes until we see a conclusion of the Russia-Ukraine war? Have a great weekend. Look, I, I tend to take the optimistic side. Uh, you know, I, my, I'm, I rationally think that people like to do what's in their best interest. We found out with the Chinese government that they preferred, you know, three more months of pain than I thought any rational human being would want to inflict on themselves. They took it. Eventually, they blinked. So eventually people become rational. In the case of Russia, Ukraine, you know, everyone thinks, you know, Ukraine's doing a great job defending themselves. But at the end of the day, Russia has a nuke and they don't. So um, the question is, how much does each side have to give up? Because right now they're just wasting lives and money and time uh, and inflicting unnecessary pain on themselves first and the rest of the world second for a useless war. And... Um, at the end of the day, they're both going to give something up. And, um, and, and, you know, like it or not, the odds tilt to Russia because they have the nuke. So um, my guess is that at some point in the near future, uh, I think more likely weeks than months, uh, Russia will get some part of the separatist region that were already predominantly Russian. Uh, they will be able to go home, have their parade and declare victory. Meanwhile, they lost a ton of money and a ton of lives for no reason. Uh, and Ukraine will be able to also declare victory, keep their uh, free democracy in place, keep their government in place, provided he doesn't drink the tea without tasters for the next five years. And um, other than that, uh, it's just a sad outcome. No one won, uh, everyone lost. There was no silver lining whatsoever. And both of them aren't going to gain much, if anything at all. And when you back out the costs and the lives, they, they both lost huge. And it's terrible, uh, particularly for Ukraine, which in effect, uh, you know, what was the victim here. Um, uh, and, and that's that. But they should look. They should come to some conclusion quickly uh, because it's, it's against their own interest to do so. So if they want to play an ego game for another few weeks and, you know, waste 10000 lives and destroy the families of those lives that are lost, then they should keep arguing over nothing because ultimately the result is going to be the same. Ukraine's going to withdraw their application to NATO. They're going to give up some land in the separatist region. And um, whether they declare Crimea Russian or not, I, I, that, probably not, uh, but they're going to give up something. And the question is how many lives do they want to lose in the meantime? So, um, Christian, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's likely what's going to happen as far as my crystal ball goes. You know, whether it's three weeks or three months, I'd take the under uh, and, and see what goes on there. Christian Cock, Christian Cope. Um, Christian, rather. Hi, Tom. I'm one of your greatest fans from Germany, and I do highly appreciate your videocast podcast. Really great insights and very convincing way to drill in the right investment strategy. Please keep it up. Being a believer in Buffett-style value investing and a shareholder of Berkshire Hathaway, I will join first time the annual shareholder meeting of Berkshire this year, again, live after lockdowns in Omaha. I assume you've been there, yes, many times. Uh, two questions. 
Uh, it seems difficult to get the entry certificate slash credentials here in Germany. Is it possible to access the meeting location with a proof of stock ownership, such as my stock account statement? We fly over to US only for the annual meeting. Would be uh, really bad not to get access. Any tips for the event to make it a great experience? Do's and don'ts. Uh, many thanks and best regards. So I would say two things. Uh, number one, I looked it up. You just go to berkshirehathaway.com. All the details are there. And um, this is what it says. If you do not receive your credentials by mail or you forget to bring them with you, please bring proof of ownership and a photo identification to the will call area in the lobby of the CHI Health Center. Any questions or problems you may have regarding the weekend and or your meeting credentials can be handled at the will call area. So um, I think... I think you'll probably be okay. I think you could also contact the company director uh, directly at investor relations, but uh, by and large, uh, you should probably be okay. I, I've always gone, the, my first, the first hedge fund I worked at, the principal was good friends with Buffett. So we were all, always in the special seating with the media and we had the credentials, et cetera. The two bits of advice I'd give you, uh, you know, you could go to Nebraska Furniture Mart if you want to do the whole thing, go to, um, um, go to the jewelry store. That's where they're usually hanging out, the media. Uh, and then go to Gorat's. I think you should go to the steakhouse that Buffett goes to. Uh, I love going there. And then hang out in the Sheraton lobby right across the street around the bar. That's where all the, all the hitters are, you know, having drinks all the time. That's where you network, where you see all your buddies. So uh, that, that would be my best advice all around. And, and even if you're not staying at the Sheridan, you can hang out there. They don't have any limitations. Um, okay, question from Sumit Kabor. Hi, Tom. Thanks for sharing your wisdom. You often say that during price dislocations of companies, you often try to determine if the earnings power of the firm has deteriorated. How do you do so? Would appreciate if you could share details about your process. Thanks for all you do to us. Well, it's very simple. I, I, it, it, was there some type of exogenous event that they would have to disclose uh, and they'd have to uh, take down their guidance? They'd have to publicly disclose that, you know, their headquarters was destroyed by an asteroid and they expect next quarter sales to be 30% less if it was going to be a material event. Otherwise, I just look at earnings at consensus estimates. So the stock's down 30% this quarter. Earnings are down 5%. Uh, you know, what, what's with the disconnect? And the disconnect is just sentiment. You know, it's, 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 and if I look out two years and I say, is this business going to be growing or contracting? I look at the headlines to see why are people so scared? And most importantly, what kind of an impact would that have in a worst case scenario on earnings power looking out a year to two years? And you just rationally look, it's an art, not a science, but oftentimes, like why I prefer public securities versus to private is because the mania of the voting machine is so dramatic that it creates these opportunities of dislocation. I mean, if, if, you, owned, uh, an, if you owned a single family rental house that was worth $500,000 and you were renting it out for $4,000 a month and it went vacant for two months, would you sell it to the next buyer for $400,000 or $350,000 because it was vacant and had no income for two months? No, that would be crazy. But that's what people do with businesses every single day. And that's what I'm, we're trying to teach you is that the long-term earnings power of good assets doesn't impair as much as the stock price. And when the stock price overshoots on sentiment uh, um, or, the, or Mr. Markets, uh, you know, a manic depressive like 
Benjamin Graham taught in his book, The Intelligent Investor and in Security Analysis, that's when we pounce. High quality assets, when they're on sale, maybe the earnings are temporarily impaired, five or 10%, but why is the stock down 40% or 50% or 60%? And that's when we step in. So um, that's a good question. Finally, Brady, well, not, not finally, we've got a lot of questions. Brady Todaro, uh, I saw your inside, Tom, I saw your insider buying email of SoFi CEO Antinoto. Uh, I've had SoFi on my watch list and have been waiting for it to drop below $10. What's your take on the company and its current price below its IPO? Thank you, Brady Todaro. Uh, you know, uh, when we post uh, insider buying or, um, unusual activity, it doesn't mean that we're involved in the stock or interested in getting involved in the stock. We're just pointing out unusual things that kind of look interesting. You know, when I look at SoFi, and, and we covered this a couple of weeks ago, they're gonna make this thing work because everyone loves Anthony Noto. He's a banker from Goldman Sachs. He did Kramer's IPO for the street. So they're gonna push this thing. I, and my guess is it gets taken out by a bigger bank uh, at, you know, in the next two years. And if it's trading at 15 at that time, you'll get $20 a share. If it's trading at $25, it'll get taken out at 30. And if it's trading at $10, it'll get taken out at 15. The, the, point, the net effect is this. Um, as unique as it is to have banking on your phone, it's a commodity. And the major banks are making huge steps in that direction. And if they can't go as fast as SoFi is going, they'll just buy SoFi. But if you look at the business, they're doing $2 billion in revenue. They have a $7.5 billion market cap. They're trading at, you know, five times uh, or, hold on, 7.5. Let me just double check this. I think they have a $7.5 billion market cap. So they're trading at, you know, three and a half. I don't know. This gets slow. Anyway, they're losing money. So yeah, $7.5 billion market cap. So three and a half, four times sales, losing money growing um you know consensus target of 16 dollars a share i think it's okay i don't think there's anything special about the business other than anthony noto and him getting a deal done at some point in the future yes they got the banking license but like what they they do the student loan refinancing and stuff that might be interesting it's gonna, gonna be a one-stop shop but there are 80 places that you can have basically a one-stop shop so um I'm not in love with this. I do see him buying the own, his own stock, but it's, it's still de minimis. I think he bought 100,000, then he bought 300,000. I mean, this is pocket change. So it's better than zero. Um, and at these levels, you probably have a margin of safety. So if you wanna play beaten down FinTech, you know, you've got the PayPals of the world uh, that have been beaten down. Uh, you could probably play this for a double over the next three to four years, but not with any high conviction at these valuations is, is my general view. Um, okay, lastly, uh, Daniel Six, I'm a weekly listener of your podcast. Appreciate your insight. I wasn't sure of the proper submission portal for the question, but here it goes. What, if any, insight do you have on the rapidly climbing issuances of CLOs, collateralized loan obligations? Do you believe the FOMC rate hikes will in and of themselves or secondhand through an economic recession cause slowing growth, cause a snowballing of defaults in the underlying loans in the sector. It seems worrisome, especially considering they are backed by even less than the CDOs, which called the, caused the 2008 great financial crisis, which were at least backed by the property being security, securitized. Thanks for all of the alpha you share. <laughs> Thank you. Um, okay. 
Um, on the CLO front, the, the problem with the CLOs, well, one is it's a smaller market than the CDOs were. So that's the good news. The bad news is they're floating rate. So as rates go up, uh, yeah, you'll have some level of defaults. Uh, obviously, they're paying a higher rate of interest because they have more risk. They package them together to spread the risk. But it's the same story all over and over. The, the, um, the good news is most of them are backed by productive assets, i.e. cash flow generating companies. The bad news is it's adjustable rate and there's been a tremendous amount of issuance. So yeah, you could have some problem there. Will it be a, a great financial crisis? No, companies' balance sheets on average are much better um, uh, fortified than they were. Banks are better fortified. Um, most of this will just lead to CDA, CDO, uh, CLO hedge funds blowing up. And there are a lot of them. Not only are the instruments they're investing in leveraged, long, but they are leveraged long. So you'll get a lot of hedge fund blowups uh, and uh, life will go on. So um, there was another question. I don't have it, but I remember it. Someone said, you use Guru Focus sometimes. The numbers aren't always perfect. Uh, that's correct. They pull them off the press releases versus the source. And I got to talk to the owner why they do that. Um, a lot of times they are accurate, but the key is they're consistently, they're consistently wrong. Meaning I can get the trend of earnings cash flow. Uh, they're uniformly wrong. So, so the source that they're pulling from every year is the same source and I can see the trend. And then you can go to something like um, ticker.com, T-I-K-R.com. And they have, I don't know where it went. Uh, but um, they pull directly from Capital IQ, and I know those numbers are right. I used Capital IQ for years. So I think they have a free uh, subscription or $30 a month, and you can see back 15 years. So that's a way after you kind of see the trends, um, if it's a small, and I also use Guru Focus for smaller companies that uh, aren't covered by Value Line. I like to go to Value Line first. Um, they give a good view. As a matter of fact, I think I did pull it up for Scott's Miracle Grow. Um, and, um, and then I'll go to guru focus and look at some metrics there. And then I, I can go to ticker and start to drill down on the numbers, uh, in many different ways. And here's an example, like with Baba, you know, you see here revenues versus cash from operations and how it's grown every single year. Um, you can't really see that s side of it, but it was a big jump last year. <laughs> Just saying, um, Okay, so now let, let's move on to the general market. So for the, you, those of you who are on the podcast, you are going to get cut off in six minutes. Just go to hedgefundtips.com, scroll down to the video cast, fast forward on the YouTube video to minute 60, and you will pick up exactly word for word where you got cut off. And you may want to go back and look at some of the charts that you weren't able to see while you were listening. We're moving right along to the general market. And by the way, um, I've gotten a lot of positive feedback that people are learning a ton from the ask me anything questions. If uh, you have a different view or you agree, just go to hedgefundtips.com, click on contact. Let me know your feedback because we're getting more and more of these ask me anything questions. And I want to make sure that people are getting tremendous value from that or if we need to just limit it to, you know, three or four a week and then uh, go from there. But uh, I'll leave it to you guys to vote. Uh, this is a great uh, thing tweeted by Carl Quintanilla from Fundstrat. The cash freight shipments index has rolled over hard, now negative year on year. 
cash freight leads CPI, which is the inflation number, by six months, meaning we think CPI risks roll over to the downside in the second half of 2022. That's been our base case for some time, and now we're seeing it uh, backed up by data, and uh, that's a very positive thing moving forward. So, uh, you know, whether it's the uh, supply chain issues alleviating due to money going from goods to services, whether we get some negotiated settlement and then followed by an Iran deal and uh, oil, oil, is, oil is a big deal and then followed by used cars. But we saw used cars, which I had something here to talk about used cars. Here we go. Um, the other part of inflation, used car prices fall, as Goldman points out, su supply chain alleviation. And you're seeing that come down, which was another big part of inflation. <laughs> But we got to take care of energy, and we've talked enough about that today. Moving right along, I love this uh, tweet from my buddy Tiho in Malta. He said, growth stock investors are now quoting wise Buffett sayings about being greedy when others are fearful. But the interesting thing is they weren't fearful when others were greedy in late 2020 and early 2021. They were getting high on their own supply. So, uh, and, then he, and then he lists these, uh, Charlie Bellelo's list of all these growth stocks that are down between 70 to 91%. And the interesting thing about them is that as you go through them one by one by one by one by one, because it's like, wow, this is down 80%. It must be a bargain. The answer is, you know, it's the same when you look through um, a lot of the innovation stocks. They're still trading at 20 times sales and losing money, 15 times sales and losing money. So what's the bottom? Seven times sales and losing money? One time sales and losing money? I don't know. But, um, you know, there are a few in here that, that are starting to get interesting, but on a valuation basis, but it's, uh, you know, Stoneco, yes, for sure. Um, uh, there's, you know, Zillow, maybe. Uh, Asana, maybe, but again, you're stretching it on the valuation. At least that guy's put put up, you know, a couple hundred. I, I think he's probably put up about a hundred million of insider purchases. Um, but beyond that, there are none that just are screaming buys. Uh, all right, this was good from macro charts. What day was this? Okay, so he's talking about the NASDAQ had a five-day breath thrust of 77%, top four-tenths of 1% of all days, also had a five-day gain of 10%. So it did, tech and the NASDAQ, which I've been pounding the table on for the last couple of weeks, did have a five-day gain of 10% last week. Uh, while everyone was dumping, we were saying to buy them. Now, below, uh, shared the last time this happened. Okay, so, oh, okay, here it is. So we've, we're having the same price thrust as what they were talking about here. Top 1% in 35-year history. Uh, thrusts are usually seen after major lows in the stock market. This, this is related to major lows in the tech, NASDAQ. Um, and he goes through the different dates. Uh, and then... Let's see here. And then I'll show you, well, well, we'll get what it looks like right now. Uh, here it is. 
So this was the breath thrust that he was re referencing. As you can see, these green dots every single time, even in the, t the last time it happened, was at the bottom uh, after the tech wreck. Then in 2009 and 2010, then in 2015, 2016, then uh, during the pandemic lows, and now. So this has only happened one, two, three, four, four other, four other times, and they've all been monster buying opportunities in tech. And um, so that was really helpful, and it just is aligned with what we've been talking about for the last three weeks based on positioning, uh, et cetera. Um, this 